We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know. We're back, baby. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm Alan Williams. Of course, I'm here with James DiVirgilio. It's February. What is there to talk about in February? Well, we got some stuff. We're here on the pod, ready to go. What's up, James? Uh, what's up, Alan? It's great to be back in the studio. And it's great to hear from from all of you. Uh, we get a lot of messages saying, hey, can you guys do a pod, please? I need one. Or I see people around town. I need my fix. I need I need you guys to opine on some things that have occurred. And, and we really appreciate that because oftentimes, I think Alan more so than me, is like, we don't we probably don't need to do a pod right now, do we? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm ready, I kind of feel the same way. But then we get messages. We're like, no, we, we need to get Let's in do it and do, Let's one. do one. So we're here. We're here and we're doing one. We're excited about it. There is plenty of things to discuss. Most importantly, perhaps for some of you, uh, I have done my Mertz film review. So Can't Mertz wait for will this. be put under the microscope. We will discuss that. That will be on this episode. And I will be putting out a YouTube film review this week as well. So mm. things to look forward to. But as always, if you like the content, follow us on social media. Sub to our YouTube channel where you can watch film reviews and become a patron on Patreon where you too can drop a dono and become a donor. We always appreciate that. Shout out to B-Red and Kari the Commissioner who are in the midst of their offseason. They don't have to help us during this period of time, but we always thank them because they're of great help to us. We're and, so grateful. Yeah, and of course we're grateful for the GNFP Sammy and the GNFP Java Discord threads named after the founders of those respective threads. They've been entertaining, uh, at times combative, but largely a great resource for people to discuss football and all things Florida, which of late, Alan, hasn't been a ton of fun stuff to discuss, hmm. whether it's football or basketball as a Florida fan. We are in perhaps a tricky place. But before we get into that, let's recognize and celebrate those of you who are supporting us with donos coming in as new donors, uh, Cody Summerland and Nick Mim. Welcome yeah, aboard. Yeah, bring it on. We got a level up from Stacy coming in with an annual large dono. Thanks, Stacy. An XL dono level up from Percy Harvin Baby. So is this Percy Harvin's baby or he's just as excited about Percy Harvin? You'll have to ask Ozzy Mutz and maybe he'll give you the answer. <laughs> uh, we have XXL dono level ups, two of them actually, Glenn Merritt with what he's calling the Warful to Doring 
leveled up. So you can imagine the, the numerical number on that one. And then Kevin Weisgerber, uh, who's leveling up to XXL as well, along with the artist known as Tim. Tim. So Get thanks it, for Tim. those off-season level ups, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And still on the throne is James Ridge, James Ridge, a narrowest of margins, but he is still there. He is presiding over the kingdom. And a lot of you now have gotten to know the rather famous James Ridge. <laughs> Uh, perhaps the you know one of the captains of NIL at Florida. No, it's not his fault that we didn't get Rashada, as he'll be the first to tell you, but a guy who loves the program. And Is he famous or infamous? No, I think I'm switching it now. I think originally he was infamous, but I think, he's, I think he's earned... Great job by him. Yeah, I think he's earned his stripes as not a shadowy figure doing weird <laughs> things behind closed doors, but a guy who knows what's going on in the program, loves the Gators, and okay. supports a lot of different efforts throughout UF and the football program. So, well, we're thankful to have him on the throne. Thank you for being on the throne. All right, Alan, read off some of Let's our do dono this. legends. Barry Jenkins, James Ridge, there he is. Guy Templeson, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, the big homie, Lil Peyton, Constantine Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Honderick, James Truitt, Gus Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jimmy Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, Craig Scarado. There we go. So this is the part of the college football season where I think a lot of fan bases kind of go up and down like they're hopeful. And then maybe not hopeful. Then hope arrives again because spring practice is on the horizon, full of hopes and dreams and possibilities. So that's where we are in the calendar. Uh, you know, it it's not the most exciting time of year, but it's not the dead time either because that's summer. So we still have some things to look forward to. You know, the spring game is going to be on April 13th. So that's a Thursday, which I know... Uh, you're not a fan of, but I don't mind too much. I'm like a, I'm more neutral. I just think it was nice for me personally. It's great. We talked about this. Yeah. If you live in Gainesville, I think it's a win. Nighttime is better in my opinion. There's a lot of things about it. I guess I'm more cognizant of the, the people that aren't me that have families and live maybe two, three hours away and they want to come up and a lot Such for a, a family, lot of people, man. that's the one time they take their kids into the swamp for games, you you're know, right. whether it's time or money or whatever. So there is a loss there, but ultimately if I'm coaching, I'm doing what's best for my program. And if I think it increases my odds of getting a recruit even by one or two or 3% to play on a television slot uncontested on Thursday night, then I do it. I understand that. So I think it's, I think it's got good logical underpinning behind it. Maybe if Florida was Alabama or Georgia, you can do it on Saturday and make it a family fest because you're already the, the big dog. But if you're trying to ascend, you want every little edge you can get. Okay. Yeah. So we're here. We're here. Uh, you know, spring practice almost here. Right. I think Coach Napier is sliding into that. You guys may have caught him on a podcast this past week answering some questions. Uh, good on Billy. I want to say that, you know, we had tried to get Dan Mullen on this podcast a couple of times. And generally, Alan, football coaches don't do podcasts. But recently, I think some of them are beginning to see the value of opening up. Uh, it gives them a different place to share their thoughts in long form. I think Billy's been a bit more guarded thus far with his answers, rather generic, if you will. Uh, I'd love to see him, of course, go more of the what I'm going to call the modern route and maybe lean a little bit more into what's going on in his mindset. Perhaps we'll see something like that in the future. But either way, I want to applaud Billy for going on a podcast because mm. I think it's good for coaches in general to try to speak more directly to 
fans and supporters and and sometimes a presser is not the best way to do that so opportunities there all right let's talk about our own players in the portal some more stuff has happened now really all the dust has settled alan why don't you walk us through who is where yeah so some of these guys were just kind of information filters out since the last time we recorded naquan Wright ends up at usf do you like that fit for him? yeah you know i mean that feels like a tier where he could come in and actually be really productive. I mean, he can be productive in SEC school, but a place like USF could, that's a big get for them. Yeah. And I think that's what he chose to do, right? He clearly wanted to go to a place where he theoretically is going to be heavily featured right. rather than a place where maybe he's a, a 10 carry kind of guy. Right. Trevez ends up at Missouri, which is weird. We have this like transfer portal directly to Missouri for some of our defensive players. It's kind yeah. of strange. I think once a few of them are there, perhaps there's some friendships and relationships. But, yep, Trevez is there, so we'll still see him. We'll, there's been a lot of that going on. We get to break down guys Welcome we've seen before. back. Uh, Jordan Young ends up at Cincinnati, which is, uh, you know, without without uh, Luke Farrell. Fickle? Luke wow, you're pulling a me right now. This is me in the offseason. <laughs> Will Farrell? Luke has gone Farrell. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love this. That makes me feel good as the person who generally biffs names. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he's at Cincinnati. Um, that feels like a good spot for him. I think he's still a talented guy who can play. We'll see. He should get a chance there. And maybe the most disturbing news, Ethan White also ends up at Southern Kyle, joins Michael Tarkin there. Our two-fifths of our projected starting offensive line ends up at USC. Big, big win for USC. Whatever you want to think about them and maybe their ceiling or – did they run their course at Florida? You know, I don't know, but that's that's great for USC. And that I think especially the Ethan White one hurts Florida a lot. And I think for them, both those guys wind up getting money from an NAL deal they didn't have at Florida. They wind up upgrading schools when it comes to profile of competing for a, a playoff spot this upcoming season. Um, you know, for them, that's yeah. a win. It's kind of the nature of the beast where we are right now. Obviously, for us, that's a, that was a very frustrating loss on both accounts. You do not want to lose two starters on your line. But it is what it is, and benefit there to USC. All right, Dejon Reynolds ends up at Pitt. Also, like probably a good fit for him. That seems like the right profile. And David Reese ends up at Cal. Um, David Reese really never got on the field for Florida, but if you're a school like Cal, you definitely take a flyer at a guy with his athletic profile and upside. So all in all, a lot of these guys went to other Division One schools. Yeah, um, almost which- almost everybody outside a few you know, predictable outliers. Correct. And of course you had the big ones with, you know, USC and the rest of them are, I think, step steps down, you know, from Florida, mm-hmm. which is what you would hope to see if people are transferring from your program. Again, that's why the O-line moves were the more painful. And the other ones. one, Jalen Lee going to LSU was the other one that. Correct. And we've covered that one. Yeah. yeah, we've covered that one already. It should be noted. These are the ones we were following that hadn't announced when we were giving updates. Draft update. Big news. Ricky Pearsall did not get the information back from the NFL he wanted, largely. So, of course, he's going to stay one more year, see if he can improve his stock, work on some things. They told him, hey, maybe do this, that, and the other. So he's here. That's obviously a significant... big news for Florida. I mean, obviously, we were desperate to have him last year. We're desperate to have him back again. Really thin room that needs a veteran guy, for sure. Yeah, no doubt. And then Rashad Torrance enters the draft. Thoughts on this one? You're making an interesting face here. (laughs) Yeah, you know, for him... I don't know if he's going to be able to, if he would up his profile, it, maybe he just didn't like the coaching he was receiving or maybe just felt like it was his moment to go. I mean, he's going to be a late round pick. I would think, uh, possibly undrafted. I think he'll definitely get a shot somewhere, but this is not like he's going to be a top pick and he, 
needed to go. So interesting decision by him. I'm sure there are a lot of factors there for him. Yeah, it's really interesting to see what's going to happen with him. We liked him, obviously, as a safety here at Florida. He put a lot of good stuff on film. Uh, I'd love to know, you know, more as to why he chose. Yeah, to Yeah, he's go not now. the biggest guy. A little bit undersized in the NFL. Significantly undersized, I think, in the modern NFL for safety. Not the fastest guy, but not slow. Good tackler, but he's undersized at a, at a couple key areas NFL teams like to have, and he's not quite as quick as what they'd want to have. But he is a stable player. Uh, anyway, we'll see what happens with that. But it felt like one more year was only going to help him, not hurt him. And he's, again, he's not in the top three rounds. So interesting thought there. All right, obviously big news with Anthony Richardson is that most people still have them not only in the first round, they have them in the top 15. Yeah. I mean, I've seen – you see him mocked all over the top 15. There's even people talking about should he go number one, which in a different year you would say that's crazy. But this quarterback class – Maybe less crazy. And it's funny to see more people get eyes on him and actually look at him and go, well, you know, he's not really just like an athlete, dude. He does some stuff in the pocket. He's got a huge amount of variance, but hmm, maybe he's closer than we thought, which is what we've been saying all along is, you know, when you watch him play, the rep on him is like, they got just got to run him. Like they're talking about him like he was, you know, a former Florida quarterback who's now at Arizona State, you know, just a runner. And, it, that's not him. He's, he can run. He's incredibly athletic, but he's not a, as instinctual a runner as somebody like a you know Lamar Jackson or something like that. And so uh, they're seeing the stuff on film going, wow. Then they're also seeing stuff on film going, oh my goodness, I can't believe he did that. But you see people already talking themselves into this guy is going to get picked. And there are people who are like, oh, it's going to be a third or fourth round pick. Well, why do you leave? It's like, I don't know where he goes. He might slide a little bit, but he's it, it'd be difficult to see him not get drafted in the first round, at least from the information we have right now. Yeah, we've covered this at length. I just want to kind of put a postmortem on it and say, you know, from the first pass, we saw him throw versus Oklahoma in the bowl game. We came out and said this guy has the potential to have, you know, a ceiling that's to the moon, right? And people were like, that's crazy. We took a lot of heat throughout a lot of time what they are which i could never understand you know every every week i'm putting out film reviews look at what this guy does look at what most college quarterbacks do look at the ceiling level here here's inconsistencies but this is not things people do naturally and obviously the nfl has caught on to that which i think they were a little bit some the nfl teams i think weren't sleeping on i think maybe some of the analysts were because they were just following the national narrative that people follow they see a pass here or there they see a highlight when you actually dive into the film he has that sky high ceiling and I think a lot of NFL evaluators are going to come to the same conclusion we did. He ran an offense that was not friendly for him last year. They were not doing things to highlight him. And oftentimes it was hard for what he would have liked to have done. They see that too. Uh, but more, most importantly, Alan, and we said this to our blue in the face, he played thir- he's played 13 games as a college football starter. 13. So, you know, we made the case that it was better for him to stay one more year. I still think that's true. If he is the guy, our argument was this. If he is the guy that's going to become a true top 10 pick, then he's going to get better with one more year, and then he would have been a number one pick. That that was the argument. You can throw injuries in there, et cetera, but the reality is the NFL is latching on to the modern model, which is you want to hit a home run with a quarterback on a rookie draft deal. That's the way to win. Now, you got Mahomes winning Super Bowl this year, right? You have some of these outliers, but the reality is the model is build a great roster, just like the Eagles did, and then have a quarterback who's athletic and maybe smart, maybe you can grow with and hit that two to three year window to win one. That's what AR offers you. 
extreme right. upside. And if you miss on a guy like AR, the nice part is you're probably going to know you missed on him pretty quickly. And financially, it's not a big commitment for these football teams. So I think a lot of football fans have not caught up to the reality of the business of the NFL. And it actually lends itself much like the NBA does, Alan, to drafting boom or bust players. What you do not want is a stable player as a top 10 quarterback pick in the NFL. You don't want that guy. That guy can't win. You need to get a guy who has that upside. Uh, and I think that's what they see in him. Now, whether or not he hits it is what we've said all along. We don't know if he's going to hit it. No one knows if he's going to hit it. But you can't ignore all of the natural gifts he has. And they're not just because he's a strong athlete. And that's what we have defended and said from day one. This guy has an innate natural skill at reading the football field and throwing the football, but he's wildly inconsistent. Can he clean that up? We'll see. But he's going to continue to be, I think, Alan, the story of the draft. Most draft board stories are leading with him. He's the most interesting guy. And that's what I think really hurts as a Florida fan. We just haven't been able to have nice things, so to speak, in the past 10 or 12 years. When we get something nice, things go wrong. We lose a game. We get a COVID year, whatever. And another example here of a guy we do get, and we don't get him for the extra year we ideally would have wanted to have him for. So here we are. Yeah, and I think if you're – the rookie thing is significant. And you know, I don't know how much he's going to benefit a team on his rookie deal. But if you hit the home run – and he is the dude, I mean, and you have him for 15 years, that's your championship window is like 15 years, right? For as long as Patrick Mahomes is healthy and is playing for the Kansas City Chiefs, they're going to be in range of winning a championship. And that's by far the most valuable thing you have. I mean, if you draft a guy like Mac Jones, it's like, he's fine. He's good. He'll win you some games, but he's not going to be a top five guy in the league, which, you know, it's better to have him than somebody <laughs> trash. So, uh, you know, there's, there's reasons you would want him on your team, but the reason you take Richardson is because he could be the best guy in the league and he has that ceiling and that's why the hype. All right. Let's talk about another Torrance. Osiris Torrance. You know, if you're, if you're a draft Nick like me and you're reading like senior bowl updates, like it's fun to watch people just kind of glow about him. He, he goes to senior bowl, which he probably didn't have to do. Same way. He didn't have to like spend another year in college football, but this is the way he operates. And everyone's like, this is the best guy in at the senior bowl. Cause he's manhandling people and people run into him and they just disappear. And so I think he's going to be a late first round pick early second round pick. You know, those guards tend to go in that range as top guys and he's going to be a 10 year starter. I mean, I, I feel like if you're banking on something like a real outcome from the draft where you wanted like the safest bet, it's like Osiris Torrance plays right guard in the NFL for a decade. And that's exactly why if I'm an NFL team, when I get into the late 20s, mm -hmm. I take a guy like that every time yeah. because that's such an incredible boomer bust position group to start taking skill guys and other guys like you either whiff real bad. That's a place to take a guy that is a starter on your team for 10 years. It's big good value for NFL teams Huge for sure. value. And uh, anyway, a guy that was really solid for Florida, obviously, which means, Alan, on a team last year for Florida that limped into the finish that was really <laughs> disappointing, that was really painful, we could have two first round picks. And to another second round pick in Trevon Dexter. Yeah. So, Which, you know, and that's the line. So those are like, you're hitting on three major important positions, but this is why I love football, right? Football is a team game. It can't just be two or three guys and you just can't have a huge drop off after them, but it is what it is, right? Players we acquired from the transfer portal update. Of course, we've already given you the names, you know, Graham Mertz, Caleb Banks, uh, Mitchell from Ohio state, Cameron Jackson from Memphis, uh, Micah Makuza from Baylor and uh, Deuce Spurlock from Michigan. But we have some new ones, three new ones to mention here. 
Yeah, Damian George, offensive tackle from Bama, enormous dude. Um, yeah, you know, this is a guy you take from Bama. He played some, but not a lot. I, it's reading the tea leaves here. He's probably just a guy, right? I don't know if they ever expect him to really be the starter, but he's a definitely an SEC sized body who has some snaps who could be a credible guy that you could slot in there. Highly ranked guy and yeah. at Bama. I think it's safe to say, Alan, that Florida would have taken Bama's second string offensive line for the past decade yeah, and been happy sure. with that. And I think it's likely that he finds playing time at Florida just because he didn't do well at Bama where he's generally playing with two or three NFL linemen every single year. doesn't mean he won't do well here where that's not the case. This is a big pickup. Last time we had had been with you guys, we were like, we have got to pick up another offensive lineman. And, and we did. And, you know, he's nice. The guy that the team is probably excited about is Keonta Goodwin, who's offensive tackle from Kentucky, who Florida was in on the previous cycle. So yeah. big time recruit, like top 50 guy, massive 6'8", 340. That's what he's listed as. Uh I'm sure still very raw, but he's the sky's got to be the limit for this guy as well. So this is the guy that you're That's actually a long hoping, term starter multiple years. Correct? Yes. This is the guy you're hoping actually comes in and wins the job and is, you know, maybe if not immediately, very soon becomes like, a dominant force for you. Yeah. And it might be for him a full year towards the end of the year, but that's the long-term George is more of a, Hey, it's a body who's played has been coached at a top school. He has the size. If we had to use him and didn't have anyone else, he's at least a stopgap. Right. And then, uh, Manny nunnery. I don't think that's his real name. Uh, but that's what he's listed as, uh, a linebacker from Houston athletic guy, you know, not a, high profile guy, but I think a guy that expect to come in and play on special teams and give depth. I mean, we're basically taking every linebacker we can find. If you think you can play possibly in the sec, please come. Cause we're desperate. So I don't know what to expect from any of the linebackers we took. Um, but I, they want bodies in here and they they've accomplished that, that at least. Yeah. It's really interesting. You know, where we are at certain position groups, linebacker, especially at Florida just feels like it should be a layup. And now we've got, spare parts from different schools uh it's going to be that kind of year but we needed them we asked for them we got them you got to take what you can get at this point and you said that accurately that's what florida's doing it it, it sucks to even say this on the air it's like but florida's taking what they can get and that's mm. all we can do we're filling holes in the sinking ship until we can right the ship build a new ship and get it going yeah and should be noted uh and again we're not big on future recruiting news but i think the program has four recruits for 2024 and two of them are linebackers and very highly rated. So, so obviously the staff sees that as a big priority. Uh, and then lastly, Cameron Carroll running back from Tulane. Florida's in a tricky spot here because you're trying to find like a veteran guy, but we have two guys at running back who profile to get the vast majority of car- car- carries. So Carroll is coming in. Obviously it's an upgrade. He's going to get a chance to play some, maybe a change of pace guy. So that's a very specific profile you're looking at. Experience plus not looking to be the starter and like kind of a one-year, two-year kind of deal. Um, but they found a guy they liked and took him. So the, the running back room needed another body, and this was a tricky spot to fill. Yeah, really interesting. I, I love to get in the headspace, obviously, of, of Carroll here and just ask him questions. Like, why would you not try to play more or, or even leave Tulane, which obviously has a really good offense and a good situation, and they're on the upswing. But 
guys leave for reasons they have, but for Florida, it does add depth, as you mentioned, and you always want to have depth at the running back position. And that's the end of our little portal news for players that we took in thus far. Now, there's another portal window post-spring practice. Uh, it's hard to say whether that's a profitable period or not. Um, you know, guys might shake loose. So this is when um, Jordan Addison went from Pitt to USC. So things happen. Uh, but I wouldn't expect Florida to take a ton of guys. If They're probably hoping for a few high-profile takes, and we'll see if they accomplish that. Yeah, and Florida's well-suited for that because, obviously, especially if you're a two-year guy, if I'm a two-year guy, Alan, I think I know if I join Florida next year, it's going to be rough. But if I feel like I'm going to start of the year after, perhaps you're walking into a team that's on the upswing and can be good. Uh, it's right. going to take a, It's going to take that kind of player. If you're a one-year rental guy and you're really solid, I can't imagine you want to come to Florida and suffer through a six-and-six six kind of year. Right, and I think you're you you know you're probably looking at a guy who looks at Florida's depth chart and maybe doesn't like his coaching situation. Maybe you've endured a coaching change. And you're looking at the offensive or defensive philosophy, and you're like, I'm not even a positional fit here. They're not going to play me. So it's not like you're getting benched. You're just like, they want me to play defensive tackle, and I do not want to play defensive tackle. So let me get out of here. Um, so maybe there might be a few of those guys who shake loose, not because they're bad. That's not what you're looking for, but that the positional fit in the new coaching staff isn't there. Okay, coaching carousel. We'll mention this because Florida didn't really experience this. No coaching changes as of yet. Kind of we're waiting on this post the regular signing day to see if anything might happen. Not that we're expecting anything to. Does it surprise you? No coaching changes for Florida? It's not surprising in one regard, and it's surprising in another regard. It's not surprising because we know that Billy Napier is highly process-oriented. He believes in his formula. He thinks he's building the right foundation. This is like he's got all the steel beams up and the concrete floor laid for the building. He's not going to take it down now if he feels like that's all solid just because he had a rough first year. Mm -hmm. He thinks those materials will lead to a solid building down the road. So that makes sense. It's a little bit surprising because there were two guys that were under a lot of heat. Uh, one, of course, Patrick Tony, which we covered in depth. Would you keep him or, or you know, not? And it seemed like Billy was always going to keep him. Always going to keep him. But the other guy who really, I think, this is where it's logical, saved his job, in my opinion, was obviously Jay Bateman, a guy who had maybe some, maybe wasn't Florida's first choice at linebackers coach, maybe his fourth choice, perhaps, at Florida. Kind of came in. Florida didn't get any linebackers at all, really, in recruiting. Couldn't pick anyone Basically, up. Basically, one guy who was like, you know, top, outside the top 300. Correct. Lost Hopper. Uh, things were not trending well. And then now in the 24 class has two of the top 30 guys at linebacker signed. So all of a sudden, if you're Jay Bateman, perhaps you saved your job with that. Or perhaps Billy was always going to keep you. I don't know. But that was the guy we heard the most about sort of speculation that maybe they're going to make a switch there. Things aren't going well there. But he's there. And I think, you know, again, it's not a great look if you're a head coach to fire somebody after one year. Sometimes you have to do it. You just missed on your hire. I think for Billy, though, we said this. This is the year. Year two is going to be the year where if you have two years of data, you'll have to start making decisions based upon what you see on the field. So that's why it's surprising and not surprising is there obviously wasn't enough from his perspective to make that change. And we went in detail on the Tony one as to why you could support one side or the other. And time will tell, but either one is a logical place to be. I'm keeping Tony because of X, Y, Z factors. I believe in this, that, and the other. And the other part was also true as well. He's in over his head. I need to make this move now. I can't cost myself another foundational year. Uh, time will tell. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, a little bit of news in around college football. We'll start with Jaden Rashada ends up at Arizona State University. Um, Taking no NIL money. Yeah, seemingly, right? Zero dollars. So let me ask you this question. After everything is shaken out and all of them, there are a lot of high-profile stories. The Athletic covered it in depth. Everybody's talking about this. Do you feel like the Florida coaches – Maybe the collective itself feels like they dodged a bullet there. Are they like, yeah, actually, maybe this is better that we didn't sign this guy. Yeah, I mean, I think the players that are involved obviously got cold feet for reasons they got cold feet for. But looking at the numbers, Georgia reportedly spent the most on their NIL at four and a half million dollars, I think was the number. In total or for one player? In total was what the number was for this season in, in total. And here we are throwing out $13.5 million to a four-star quarterback who might not even be good. I mean, it was insane. But that's the Ruiz effect. We talked about this. I think it's very clear now in the rearview mirror, Alan, that one guy, John Ruiz, train-wrecked Florida's recruiting for last year, and he's happy about it. And I don't think that guy cares about Miami football at all. The more you read about it, the more you see it. He doesn't care at all if Miami wins or loses. He could care less. He does care about harming Florida. And thankfully, this is what I would say. I'm super happy we're not paying a guy $13.5 million for the reasons we mentioned on the podcast when compared to other NFL quarterbacks to come to Florida and be whatever he was going to be with his dad managing him like he was some sort of deity. And now he's at Arizona State where he makes nothing. Um, To me, there's so many things that went on there that just seem unbelievably foolish. One of which seems simple. If I'm Rashada and his dad, okay, Florida, forget the 13 and a half. How about you give me the seven? But that, we lost trust in Florida. They're not going to, so then you go somewhere and get no money. I don't know. The whole thing just made a circus out of the NIL, but I will say this. A lot of people felt like this damaged Florida on the NIL trail. I don't see it that way at all. If you're a high school athlete, Florida 
just apparently opened the pocketbook for $13.5 million potentially to one guy. So it at least tells you that there's some people that will spend some money. And more importantly, I think for Florida, if you're going to learn a big lesson, you want to learn it really early in this environment. It's the right time to learn the lesson. Hey, you know what? Now we're not going to do this, this, and that. And now we're going to find ways to have more influence, more influence over the NIL process. Now, legally, of course, you know, Florida cannot sign contracts and do other stuff in certain realms. They can't do certain things they like to do, but you better believe they're going to be more tethered in with the way that they can be it. So all in all for me, I don't feel like this was tremendous egg on Florida's face. I don't even know that other college football fans do it that way. The general view of NIL for most people is just negative. It's not ideal. It's shadowy. It's frustrating. And I just don't think that other schools are like, wow, Florida's a clown show because they couldn't pay this guy so much money. And to your point, Alan, I am happy we did not pay this guy so much money. I think what's had a really bad precedent across the board for what Florida's trying to do is building a team just and I think it would have set us up very poorly for future negotiations. I mean, if you hallmark yourself, you benchmark yourself as paying a guy that much money, the next guy comes in and says, Well, you paid that guy that much money. If you give me five or four or three million, you're like, What is this? Right. And so now that's gone. There is no market set for that. And I actually think that's tremendously beneficial for the long run. And we would not have wanted to have been stuck with that scenario. That's just my thoughts on that. And if you look at the top tier quarterbacks every year, like half of them don't pay at all. They don't play. And they don't play. Let that settle in. Yeah. They don't actually play. Or maybe they move around and play a little bit here or there. But, but they, they don't become yeah. even a solid starter. And you're paying him like he was Arch Manning or something, right? So Who may not also play <laughs> exactly. or start. And, you know, and this is it puts Florida in kind of a weird spot. But you've also got your even more high-profile recruit in G.J. Lagway behind him. Much more high profile. Yes, that you're hoping actually is the guy. So then you would have paid all this money to a guy that you're not even sure you want to be the starter long term. It was a hot mess. And as you said, it's better to learn the lesson now, actually before you pay the money and realize that was stupid. All right. So, of course, you want to stack more talented guys because you don't know. Maybe Rashad is going to be the Hall of Famer in Lagway. It sucks. So you want to get more talented guys in there, but there is you know, at what cost, right? So there is a, a place where you would say, this is not best for us. And I think that Florida l- learned a lesson and hopefully will benefit from the pain involved in this whole messy situation. And, you know, this is a big news cycle for a while, but I think, you know, 13 months from now, people are not going to remember it. Unless, the only way this becomes yeah. really remembered is if Rashada becomes an all-world epic yeah. college football player. Then it becomes like, oh, we hit on the right guy. Maybe we should have done something about it. But in any other world that's not that world, this becomes nothing. And again, keep in mind, Rashada was the same profile basically as Emory Jones. Yeah. Uh, recruiting wise, different style player. But like that, there's a ton of guys like that. Go look up all the four star quarterbacks that have occurred in the past 10 years and find out how many of them are irrelevant. And for Rashada's sake, I hope he's not. I'm not rooting against the guy. I, I don't even know if he had any role in it, right? He's a high school kid. He's got people in his life that were pulling him totally. one way or the other. Who knows what he wanted or where he is. So when I'm mentioning that Rashada gets nothing, I'm not gleeful about that. But there's a part of me in a, in a free market negotiation world where if, if you're bouncing around and you're getting promises that are too good to be true, which they are, and then they fall apart. And then you're like, well, I'm not I'm never coming here unless you do this. And then, you know, there's just there's just so many things the athletic reported on that was really good reporting, by the way, that just illustrates what matters to me here, which is what I'm trying to say. The NIL is a jacked up, busted system where it's basically criminalizing things that are legal. 
So essentially something that's normal, you and I, Alan, want to hire somebody to work for the podcast. We go hire them. We pay them what they want to do that in football. You can't. So we're taking this thing that everyone does normally and we're making it like a mafioso activity where we have to bring in some shadowy third party that we can't see the contract. We can't negotiate the contract. And you and I just say, hey, cross our fingers. Hope you can get this guy for us over here. Report back when you do. And then when that falls through, people are like, well, the AD's an idiot and you're an idiot as the coach. And it's like the AD and the coach had no idea what was happening. If you call Scott Strickland right now and you call Billy Napier and say, what happened with Rashad? You know what they're going to say? I know the same thing you know. Because all they can do is talk to Hugh Hathcock and all they can do is talk to the collective and talk to Rashada and talk to the lawyer and listen to their stories because they weren't there. And again, how asinine is that? They're not in the room when they're negotiating or signing contracts for their own player that's going to come represent their school and be on their team. That's how messed up this whole thing is. And it's not getting fixed anytime soon until we rewrite, rewrite laws and change things. So that's what this illustrates. I think every school sees this, every coach sees this and knows this is what we're all dealing with. We better be careful. We better find ways to safeguard ourselves from stuff like this and make sure we have some way to exert influence behind closed doors where it's maybe not illegal, but not legal, right? The gray area where we have a person in the room that reads the contract and says, nope, not yeah. going to fly. And I think Florida was a little naive, crossing their fingers, hoping these third parties are going to do things well. And I think now they're not so naive. All right. We'll put a close on that. Some of the other big news in college football. I'm going to package all these things together because they're all happening at the same time in 2024. Oklahoma and Texas are coming in 2024. They get out one year early. USC and UCLA are going to be in the Big Ten in 2024. And the playoff, the 12-team playoff, is going to start in 2024 as well. So one more year in the current system before college football looks very different starting in two years. Um this has obviously been long anticipated. I mean, Oklahoma and Texas feels like they announced this like 10 years ago. They're coming and it's still not quite there yet, but I don't know. In some ways I feel like the playoff is great for college football. I'm, I'm more mixed on all this conference realignment. It may be inevitable, but kind of like NIL might've been inevitable, but I don't know if it's best. We'll see, but it's going to be really exciting one way or the other. Yeah, I can't wait for those Rutgers, USC, and UCLA games where they have to fly all the way across the country to play in the same conference. The Big yeah. Ten the Big Ten is the NFL in footprint now. They're coast to coast. It's ridiculous. Hmm. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not against Super League, so to speak, but we're sort of, again, in the early stages of, I think, what's going to eventually become a true country-to-country -country Super League. And if you doubt that, just remember the Big Ten is now a coast-to-coast -coast league. With so far more than 10 teams. Correct. So they've that's already done. It already exists. It's already coast to coast. So the next negotiation that's like, let's make a 30-team Super League or a Premier League, whatever you want to call it, that's already gone. No more objection about traveling for college athletes across the country. That's gone. And ultimately, Alan, I'm with you. Super stoked about the playoff. I've wanted this ever since we've done a podcast, ever since I was in high school, ever since I knew about competitive football. I've won the playoffs. So I'm very happy about that. I'm very sad about the NIL and I'm sad about losing traditional rivalries and things that I think make college sports special. That part is also right. unfortunate, but I'm in favor of anything that gets us off this convoluted NIL train as it is. And I do think these are steps that will ultimately actually help us get away from the NIL as it currently is and 
set up a more professionalized league for college sports, which sounds ridiculous, but it's the way we have to go. And I do think these are like booster steps to get there. So I'm going to look at it through that lens. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how the SEC handles the scheduling model. Um, seemingly, they're going to go to the 3-6 model with an extra conference game and three permanent opponents. Um, we've we've speculated that, about that already, but that when they announce that, it's going to be huge news. Everyone's going to flip out about you know who who gets who as their permanent opponents. So, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Though. It's a huge I, I'm excited. About it. There's so many huge more fun upgrade. games that we don't have to oh. pay. Kentucky no. and Vanderbilt and Missouri every year. We just get to rotate all these fun games. Through. It's, it's awesome. Gonna be really it's going to make it just so much better as a fan. And so again, there's a lot of good stuff that's happening. It's just that it's underneath the cloud of the NIL, which isn't right. Speaking of the NIL, Florida rules have been changed to keep Florida competitive. You may have seen this. Essentially, Florida was one of the first to pass NIL legislation. They had several guardrails up because at that point in time, nobody really knew what the NCAA was going to do, how courts were going to challenge this stuff. And then other states began repealing their own stuff much quicker than Florida did. And Florida did not want to fall behind, basically, with their legislation and laws that are written. So the current deal, and I quote, allows coaches, schools, or other organizations to be involved in facilitating deals. So it basically just removes some of those protective guardrails. And it also protects the schools and coaches in general from bad NIL deals. It cannot fall on them, which is also really important because, again, if it's not their contract, They should not be getting held liable if XYZ situation happens or if a player winds up getting benched or whatever, uh, and it's not that way. So just just some things that kind of put us on par with states like Alabama and others that have similar rules. So nothing special, just a a, a level playing field equalizer, if you will. And then lastly, Alan, uh, Norvell at Florida State gets a big raise and an extension. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, he, he. I don't know if he deserves it. But the projections would say he does, right? So that they finished the year really well, handled Florida, and their recruiting isn't great, but their portal recruiting is stellar again for the second straight year. Seems like he has them going in the right direction. I, I still remain skeptical whether he could be a championship-level coach, but for right now, they're riding high. So we'll see. I, I didn't look into the contract. I don't know what the buyout structure is. I don't know if it was a – I mean, a raise is fine. But they're, you know, they're not a program that should be tossing around money willy nilly after all the, you know, bad contracts they've given out. Uh, this might come back to bite them. We'll see. Yeah, didn't pass a three year test, but a guy that we've said when they hired him, I thought he was a good football coach. Uh, seems more of like a, a middle tierish kind of guy right. at a top conference, but he's getting the benefit of playing in a very, very soft ACC right now, getting several extra wins you wouldn't get in a bigger conference. And I always like to think of like, let me put this coach in the SEC. Where is he? And I think Florida State in the SEC is a is Florida six and six, same kind of deal. Um, and he's in year three, so I'm not a believer in his like championship level upside. But I think for Florida State, they're looking around the country saying there's a ton of instability right now. Teams are struggling all over the place. We want to have some continuity with a guy that we know now, and you know we didn't get Dion, which. I'm happy they didn't go after Dion, but that was a little fear for me on the upside. Dion may fall flat to Colorado, but that was a fear. So all in all, I feel good about it. Like I think he's going to be solid. I think they'll be fine. But I think they're Florida paying State's, him like he's a like he's a top shelf. They coach. are, and I don't, I don't. I don't. That's why I'm saying I wouldn't do it. I'm fine with it as a Florida fan. Meaning right. I saw it and thought, good. I'm happy with this. He's not a guy that I fear. I could eat those words. I think he's competent. I don't fear him. And if you're going to lock him up and give him a lot of money. Florida State's always a school that is one coach away from being really good. They just have that cachet. They play in a soft conference. So Norvell seems to me like a manageable coach of my rival school. I like that. 
All right, recruiting update. Very quick here, since nothing really changed for Florida basically at all. Uh, we entered early signing day at a 2.5 tier in our tier system. And again, very quickly, if you're tier one, you have to have two or more top 30 players, six or more top 100 players, and 13 or more top 300 players. If you're Alabama this year, you obliterated that number and you're in a tier of your own. Tier two is one top 30, four top 100, 11 top 300, and tier three, where Florida's largely been residing, zero top 30, uh, two top 100, and eight or more top 300 Florida's class on early signing day was tier two and a half. It remains tier two and a half despite a, a small slide in overall metrics in the 247 composite. We were 12th on early signing day. We finished 14th despite having the same exact commits. That's largely due to how they, um, you know, changed their ratings as time goes on and how other schools picked up a player or two here. Uh, but largely Florida's the same 18, four stars, two, three stars, two now in the top 56, but none in the top 30, two in the top 100, but six in the top 115 and nine in the top 300. So overall that puts Florida right there to tier two and a half tier two, 7.5. That's not good enough to win a national title. We've talked about that. Uh, again, lastly, the big comment is for me and the three-year test, everything is hanging on Billy's 2024 recruiting class. He's going to have to get up there. Otherwise, you begin to raise that red flag of we're just not going to get high enough. Hopefully now with kind of a reason to rearview mirror, a lot of lessons learned from NIL, we will be ready to approach this next recruiting year differently to get ourselves where we need to be. Right. And I think this class is really interesting, like 18 four stars and two three stars. And even the three stars aren't low rated guys. They're not like in the thousands or whatever. Uh, the three star range is really broad. I don't know if I've ever seen a class this narrow in a bandwidth where almost everybody's between like 100 and 350. So I think you look at this class and say, you would ex there's not a lot of projects. Maybe one guy would qualify as that, but you're looking at a lot of these guys you would expect to come in and p compete and be solid contributors to your program. A lot of talent, even if it's lacking the top end talent, it's that that's where the distribution misses is it's missing the top 50 guys. But you know, if you take like three of those, like, you know, four stars and make them like top 50 guys, then all of a sudden you're looking at a really excellent class and, you know, they're, they're not far from it. They're just missing that, that one slice there. And, you know, seemingly had those guys at one point. Yeah. Had those guys out. lost them perhaps due to reason. Of course, there's been a lot about how Florida really has not been signing the top players in the state of Florida. And that's been Billy's major Mm -hmm. goal and that will have to happen we have to do that but this world is different i'm going to keep reminding everyone of this if this was happening in the pre-nil era i would be raising so many red flags because that would not be good but this is different the florida players are often the best players in the country the top 15 of them are taking money over everything else for the most part and for whatever reason that's what they did napier had one year to recruit these guys now he's got two we're going to see what's going to happen see if they buy into his culture and his system um, so again, 2024, everything is hanging on this. Billy knows it. We know it. You know it. We'll follow it. All right. Coaching corner, really not a coaching corner here, Alan, but your thoughts on how the Super Bowl ended. A lot was reported on about the penalty being a penalty, but did you feel like that penalty should have been called in that situation? Well, it's hard. I, I've, I kind of come down on both sides of the logic. It's like, you can't call that at the end of the game. I, I kind of am sympathetic towards that. And also like, if it's a penalty, it's a penalty. It was ticky-tack whether you would have called it in the second quarter or the fourth quarter. Technically, it was a penalty. I mean, the guy even admitted to it. Um, it didn't, I don't think, all that meaningfully affect the outcome of the play. And it 
basically ended the game. Had it been, have, had they made that call in the second quarter, you wouldn't even notice. It would never be like, oh, I was a little bit, well, it was a little tight, but whatever. The fact that it came at the very end of the fourth quarter is going to be the thing that people remember about this game for a lot of reasons. That's unfortunate. Yeah, and it was trash for that reason. I think referees are, are taught that a foul in the fourth quarter is not the same as a foul in the second quarter. Uh, they know for sure a foul at the very end of the game is not the same as a foul in the first quarter. And you have to view that in measure. And I think I think the reality is, Alan, you need to call penalties and penalties are there. But on every single play, on every single play, pull up the all 22, guys are grabbing each other. Every single play. I thought it was quite honorable that the Eagles player actually admitted to that because he could have very easily been like, I do that every play. And it would have been reasonable because he didn't really inhibit his route all that much. And in fact, Juju didn't really complain at all about being held at any point in time. So to me, it was a really unfortunate ending to it was a really great Super Bowl. And if you're an NFL executive, you just hated it. Because it took this game that was, you know, you heard it, the announcers were talking about us trending on becoming one of the all-time great games, and you just sucked all the drama out of the ending. And that's reasonable if it's a serious penalty, I thought, in that case. Yeah, if he tackles him, you just got to call it. Yeah, right? I thought in that case, you got to swallow your whistle there. It's just not enough. It was not it enough. super late, too. If to, he had thrown yes. it at the top of the route, where you know, kind of bent towards the end zone, it's like, well, he didn't really know. He held him, and then it could have been major. But he waited long enough to see what happened and then threw it. Yeah, it just it just didn't feel. It just yeah. wasn't great. I've seen the replay a million times. Again, did he hold him a little bit? Yes, but I challenge you to watch as much film as as you know I watch or other guys watch and not see that stuff all the time. And oftentimes that goes uncalled. And that's where to me, if it can go uncalled in a regular game at a regular time, it should always go uncalled on third down and eight with the Super Bowl on the line. You got to make the teams kind of beat themselves there, and that's what I like in the backyard. I don't think Juju is going to call foul on that. He's not going to call foul. They're going to play the fourth down and go on. They're just not going to do it. It's not enough. And that's what I like. So it was what it was. And I don't know that the wrong team won, though. It's not like... No, either team was worthy. It was yeah. just, it really sucked out that. I mean, if they go field goal there, then Eagles hit the ball a minute and a half left. We got a football game. And you don't do things for that purpose, by the way. You don't do it for that purpose. I just felt like ticky-tack is the sure. right word. Unfortunate ending to the Super Bowl. All right, so spring ball, just a, just a table setter here. Spring ball is not happening just yet. We are going to do a March episode. Uh, but what are you thinking about as Florida heads into the spring ball season roster-wise? Like what are, you know, we're, we're not going to know during spring ball exactly what happens. We talk about this every single year. But like what's kind of on your mind? Uh, you know, what what's the staff thinking about? Like what is the sort of orientation of this team? There's so many new faces, so many new pieces, a really seemingly difficult year two on the horizon. I think all the coaches are aware of this. Probably going to be a tough year record-wise. Like, what? what's the vibe? Yeah, I mean, I think the headline is going to be the quarterback battle. Mertz and Miller, if that isn't even is one, or maybe Mertz is just the guy. But we're about to talk about Mertz in a second, so I'll leave that there. I think the other question marks for me goes right to the defensive side of the ball. Like, we're basically replacing, theoretically, all of our linebacker core plus safeties including the star position so who slots into all those spots who's running with the number ones you know you have some presumed guys there but there's a lot of playing time up for grabs and who fits that and then the offensive line like where how do they align that what are the guys that they're thinking are going to be the starters there you have some guys you would make assumptions about but there's a lot of potential movement up and down the line there and here's the here's the weird thing we complained about the previous staff recruiting a billion edge rushers from the, you know, buck position. Now we call it the Jack position. Basically we have one guy left over there now. 
We have Antoine Ryan Paolo, who was great, but there's basically nobody behind him of any significance. And do they move some guys? Do they try to find another pass rusher in the portal? Um, does anybody emerge, you know, that can play there? And then the last thing is like this class, more than any class I've ever seen is almost full of early enrollees. Like almost everybody is enrolling early. So who pops from that freshman group? Are there any potential stars? Um, you know, that'll be fun to see again. That might not translate to the fall, but that those are storylines you're looking for. Does anyone show flashes of being great from the beginning? Yeah. My storyline, aside from the ones you mentioned, those are obviously all clearly top of mind, but I think on a, on a foundational sort of 30,000 foot view level, are these freshmen the the start of what I'm going to call the O fours from basketball? Okay, on Billy Donovan's team, uh, because I think Billy's PR staff would like you to think that's the case. I think he'd like to tell you that there's 20 guys now that are here that are different, that are committed, that are bought in, that are that are like strong, mentally fit guys who are ready to compete and build a winning culture. Now, I hope that's true. Every coach will say this when they're installing their plan, including when they are going down with the ship and they don't win. Uh, but if that is true, then I want to look back on this spring and this season and say, yeah, we went six and six or whatever, but we saw the seeds of change. We saw the younger guys, right? And you saw that with Florida's 04s. You heard that reported on so often when they became the guys. And before they were the guys, they were the guys. They were winning in practice. Their attitude was different. The way they approached the game was different. And these are things you didn't know in real time, but you knew after the fact. And that's what I want to say. For us, for me, if Billy is building the culture he wants to build, that is the stuff we're going to hear about two years from now. We'll hear about this spring. We'll hear about the change in dynamic. We'll hear about how the competition level changed. And all these guys are early enrolling in large part because it's Billy's system. He wants to get this culture infused with a different mindset. And that I think is, is maybe the most important thing of all. You have to have the talent, which we don't have yet, but you also have to have that mindset. You got to build something that people can come into. There's an identifiable, discernible culture. And Florida has not had that for some time. That's what Billy's big on. We're going to find out if that starts to begin something. Okay, so I'm really excited for this next segment. You did a little film review of one Graham Mertz. I guess high-profile transfer quarterback. I think the the reaction of the Florida fan base has been a collective meh. You That's know? putting it kindly, right? perhaps. Meh. More Dis- like what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but really high-profile guy coming out of high school. Big signing from Wisconsin. Talented guy. Has the size, has the arm strength, has the smart, seemingly all the ingredients that you want in a starting quarterback. Um, the new the staff seems to really like him. That's every time you hear kind of whispers like they were blown away by him, they love him, really solid dude. Uh, even we've talked to people who got up close to him, were like, yeah, you know, he's got all the stuff. We'll see. All right, so you watch the film. Let's talk about what you saw. And I like that. Let's set just one more backdrop and context because every coach glows about whatever player they acquire sure uh and there's a lot of glowing about Mertz and you're like well if that's true then how come there's been so little success at least on paper statistics right a lot of the stats are ugly we've already covered them but as a rehash a very low completion percentage much in the vein of AR without the running ability um 
you know, just a, a mixed bag of stuff. This, if this guy's coming in at a 65, 66, 67% completion percentage, you might feel a lot differently. Uh, but, you know, highly recruited guy, a guy people like, a guy that right now is, you know, quote, running routes uh, with all the receivers frequently after practice all the time, gathering voluntary workouts with his receivers and going over high level concepts, watching film like he's a football guy is the quote, a high IQ guy. So those are all the things you want. Those are good reports, sure. but does it translate? So on the film, I watched every single game from last season, every single snap that Mertz played from last season. Uh, against the quality opponents. I did not watch Northern Illinois and other stuff, but I watched every single game he played that was quality. And I will say from beginning to end, I feel like it gave me a really good picture of who Mertz is. And I think what he'll probably do at Florida to a large degree, you've probably seen it reported quite a bit that of course, of course, Mertz ran the pistol maybe eight times, eight snaps in the pistol through one time, I think maybe twice out of the pistol the whole season, uh, spend most of his time under center. And then when Leonard took over, spent a little bit more time out of a shotgun kind of spread alignment, uh, but still heavy packages. Wisconsin does not have breakaway receivers, much slower guys. And Wisconsin's team in general, Allen, it should be noted, super prone last year to giving up instant pressures on the quarterback, had a hard time running the football. It was not going not to be Not a traditionally Wisconsin-style offense. No, it was not going to be easy for any quarterback there. They often shot themselves in the foot with lots of penalties, holding false starts, etc. It was a lot of clown show offense in a bad way on film. That should be said. But all that being said, I'm going to start with the things that were really actually very good from Mertz. There's a lot of things on film that you start watching thinking, wow, that's actually, that's actually really, really good. So one... He plays with his back to the field, and he does that very well. He's a very, very good executor of play fakes, run fakes, play action. He has extremely quick feet going through his drop. Very, very important. All good play action passers have very efficient and stable footwork, and he does that whether it's three-step, five-step, seven-step, turning his back to it, rolling out right, rolling out left. Excellent footwork when he's in system, so to speak, not pressured, uh, which is really, really good. He's a natural thrower of the football. If he's on platform, on base, in system, he tends to throw the ball very, very well. Uh, he makes some sensationally accurate throws at times, especially on vertical balls, NFL-level throws. And there's a lot about his game that looks like a guy who's played a lot of college football. He's comfortable. He runs the system well. He's he's you know generally aware of what's happening. And so those are the things that you look at and think, those are actually very high-level things. A lot of good stuff there that if I'm a quarterback coach, I can build on. And then you see some things that are, are, I think, what cause him his his problems. And and the biggest thing for me, Alan, is I'm going to call this proximity pressure. Not real pressure, but guys that get in his proximity. And this could be due to the fact that he spent two years with a Wisconsin offensive line that was pretty porous. And you develop, I'm going to call this the the David Carr effect. Seen and you, David Carr was widely regarded as a guy who could have been a top NFL quarterback, played eight or nine years behind the worst offensive line, you know, anyone's ever seen with Houston and basically never recovered after that first three or four year period, just never got away from his clock in his head was broken. I think Mertz started to exhibit that as the season went on. And when guys were kind of close to him, fundamentals break down, his eyes may come off downfield. He might throw the ball without finishing uh, things that will kill you as a quarterback. Whereas when he's in system, Ball's great. Ball's on time. Anticipates the throw. Throws to grass. Like doesn't need his receiver to be open yet. Like those are high level things. So you get a, a pretty significant breakdown there um, that hurts. So that proximity pressure, if you will, gets him. He doesn't throw the ball away nearly enough when inside the pocket. So good veteran quarterbacks, when the play's not there, they'll put a ball to guy's feet. 
to put a ball somewhere else. He tends to try to escape out of the pocket. He often escapes the wrong way out of the pocket. Uh, a lot of his interceptions and poor plays came from trying to make plays when he kind of got out of the pocket, reestablished his eyes downfield, games moving fast, bad play there. That's pretty consistent. And then, uh, you know, because of that, he also takes more sacks than necessary, right? A guy like him, who's athletic enough to move around, should be thinking, read, 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 ditch it. Not read, 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 put my head down, try to escape. That's not what he should be thinking. So that hurts him there. And this, I think, is the thing that disappoints me the most, but it also explains his inconsistency. He is known as a football guy. He's a film junkie. He can explain every coverage in detail. I'm sure if I had him on the film, he could break down every little thought. He's a much better pre-snap quarterback than post-snap quarterback. And we often talked about why I was so high on AR. Is AR post-snap at times is absolutely brilliant with how he'd read the field. Merge is kind of the opposite. Pre-snap, if he diagnoses what you're in and he's comfortable with the look, he's going to probably make a really nice play. Teams on film, I think, figure this out quite early. And they often would get him a lot with bringing their safety down in the box very tight and then bringing him into a new spot, cover two, cover three, cover four, but kind of dropping him out from the line of scrimmage to where Mertz pre-snap thinks he's got a seam go, he's got a corner route, whatever he wants, and he's often never recognizing his post-snap picture is very, very different. So that was a major Achilles heel for him, I think, in frequent times uh, throughout the film review. He loves to throw corner routes, loves to throw verticals, but those pre-snap, like I'm going there to a corner or vertical can be very dangerous if you're not recognizing what happens post-snap. It also means you miss easy throws for big plays when you have the right play call on, but you pre-snap think you're in cover one man, you're going to throw a go route and you get cover two and you got a wide open post route in the middle. He's often just premeditated. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make that happen. That's not good for a veteran quarterback. And then kind of lastly, um, and obviously I mentioned this already, is you know the biggest thing that really affects him is he does have all the tools. It's just the consistency. And some games it's there. But the thing that troubles me the most, Alan, is in the biggest games, the biggest moments. He had some, some big plays, but oftentimes it were his worst moments. He aims the ball rather than throws confidently. He anticipates the wrong way, throws early. He feels the ghost a little bit. Doesn't wait, doesn't hang in there, doesn't come off a read. Um, and therefore, that means in big games, his 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 foundational skill sets would break down. He stopped reading. He threw to his pre-snap first receiver. He locked in onto guys. He took his eyes downfield if he got pressure. He threw early when he didn't need to. He uh, didn't keep his eyes downfield to extend plays when he got pressure. And all of those things are what winning quarterbacks do uh, at the college level. They're able to influence that. Now, I think what Billy would say to these queries is, hey, look, I think the team he's going to have around him at Florida is better than what he had at Wisconsin. Potentially debatable given where we are with our skill set. I think I'm going to give him more time. I'm going to give him, you know, some more open reads. My system might be better to his liking. Oftentimes, Mertz had to throw on third and 10, third and 14. He's had a lot of throws behind the sticks. They were bringing a running quarterback in on second and five. He was coming out of the game at times. So there's a lot of stuff that worked against him, perhaps, Alan. But all in all, I'm going to say this about him. He is a capable pilot. He's capable. Nothing on film showed me this guy is a disaster or a train wreck or a sub-SEC level player. I think he could be an average SEC quarterback the way he was last year. Like nothing about him was not an average SEC quarterback, just how the film was last year. Because if you roll that film, the average SEC quarterback made a lot of dumb plays too. Did a lot of bad things, did a lot of things that weren't great. Um, so that's the good news. I think I was pleasantly surprised with what I saw, but again... 
the completion percentage, the inconsistencies are often explained by those things I measured. I'll show this stuff on film review. So all that says, pleasantly surprised, capable pilot. Uh, if you're Billy and you hope that you hit his upside upside, you can see that he has skills and traits where he could be a top-level guy. Like, you can see it. He flashes that kind of stuff. But to me, Alan, there's too many of those inconsistencies. There's I named a lot of them. Mm -hmm. There's too many of them to ever believe that in one season, especially on a very flawed Florida team, he could eliminate enough of them to win you big games. And I will end with this. I think if you took a Graham Mertz and you put him on a Bama or a Georgia, he might be very, very capable. Because now you're just really telling, look, I'm going to give you a great offensive line. You're rarely going to have to worry about taking hits back there. I need you to eliminate these two things that you do poorly. And the rest I'll live with. I think he could do that. He's got plenty of talent. But at Florida, I don't know that we can eliminate any of those things comfortably for him to where he can trust X, Y, Z. So pleasantly surprised, capable pilot, plenty of issues. I think for Wisconsin fans, when they were saying that he was the worst quarterback they've seen and things were so frustrating... In my opinion, based upon one year of film study, I did not watch the other years. A lot of it had to do with team flaws, but I think most of it had to do with the unfortunate big game moments he had, which were generally his worst Magnified. Moments. And also yes. their expectations for him. Yes. Were so, were so high. And that's what hurts you. So yeah. if you have those bad moments at the biggest times, you're going to have a really, it's very sour taste. But on film, if you watch all the plays in totality, again, it all makes sense. But you, if he could have flipped those moments... Big games would have been high leverage, good scenarios. Bad games would have been, you know, blowouts versus teams he struggles. It would have been so much better, but we'll see if he sort of has a clutch issue or if it was just a maybe trying to do too much. Who knows? All right, let me ask this. Uh, of the, especially of the flaws that you mentioned early, how many of those do you think are fixable or reasonably fixable? Well, that's the reality. He doesn't have any actual like cancerous issues. Right, right? but I'm saying like the stuff so, about post-snap read or... Yeah, I mean, you. well, that's the thing is it's it's so... This is where it's impossible for me to answer because you have to work with a guy to see what he's thinking. So I'd love to have him here and say, what are you... Show me on this play what you were thinking when this happened. Like, what are, what are your eyes doing? What are you looking for? How how fast is the, does the field feel like it's moving for you? Like when you took this... Like there's times on film, and I'm going to show it in the YouTube review, where he's looking dead at a dropping safety, dead at him. And I'm thinking he 100% has to know... They've just rolled the cover two. And he still throws the cover one go route. And it winds up getting picked off on a tip pass. And I would like to ask him, like, what are you, what are you seeing something? Or are you just what I'm going to call distraction looking? Pre-snap cover one, I'm throwing the go route. I kind of look. I'm not really processing information. I'm just looking. And I suspect that's what he's doing. Can you fix that? That can be fixed. That can be fixed. But he did it a lot to the point to where you're like, man, he really should have recognized that. And at times, he does that well. And I think in-system, very, very solid. So if Billy's able to call plays where he's protected and he's comfortable and he has a good pre-snap read, he, he is a very, very He can execute on the play that you're giving him. Very and significantly so and very well. And he can make reads and check down. But if, anything, if that window seems to change post-snap and there's even a modicum of pressure on him, he's not resetting in the pocket and moving through his progressions very well. That's, okay. that's, that's what's the Achilles heel. So yeah. Anyway, and I mean, know. I think that's was my sense of him is like, not that he's all bad all the time, but he's broken in places that cause you to lose in some of the high leverage moments. And the pressure on him, both like literal and figurative was high. Very high. And this, what, this might help him. 
I think the best thing, I'm glad you said that, Alan, is that he comes into Florida where most fans think he sucks. Most fans have heard from the Wisconsin friends he sucks. And honestly, if I'm Mertz's quarterback's coach, I'm like, hey, that's the greatest thing ever for you. There's no pressure on you. They already think you suck. Just go out there and play. Because he doesn't actually suck. He actually is much better on film than perhaps every Gator fan would think he is. And he does have the capability to be better than that. And perhaps a lower pressure environment where he's not AR, people already think we're going to suck next year, allows him to dial down the pressure on himself and maybe let his actual underneath fundamentals shine rather than feel that leverage and that pressure and tighten up and have a regression. And try to feel like he has to win the whole game by himself because it's their best option. Correct. And, you know, there is a world where Florida has two great running backs that the guys that they pick up in the portal fit in nicely and Barber works out, Mascua works out, and Goodwin works out. And all of a sudden, we have a stable offensive line who's doing what they're supposed to do. And the offense can be competent. Now, the problem is you probably need the offense to be excellent. And I don't know if we're going to get there with him, considering that the defense asking them to make a massive jump seems just totally unrealistic. So Yeah, and let me, let me say this, because let's put it into context, right? Maybe some of you are wondering, well, what is he like compared to Florida quarterbacks in the past? Well, he's better than almost all of the guys in the past 10 years. I would take him over just about everyone. Uh, he's better than Frank's, in my opinion. His film, much better than Frank's. Much better. I mean, Frank's often couldn't read the field at all. He just threw to a first read. Um, he's much more accurate than Frank's. It's not the same arm strength, but more polished. Better than guys work. like Del Rio and Appleby. Oh, yeah. Way better than Appleby and Del Rio. I mean, better than all those guys. So if you're looking at it that way, he's a much more capable pilot than the majority of guys that have played quarterback at Florida, Emory Jones, et cetera. He's not AR ceiling, obviously. He is not Kyle Trask even remotely. Like Kyle Trask is like what Mertz would want to become. Like polished footwork, eyes always downfield, great pocket presence, right? Feel for where to move, like always coming off reads. Like that's where he'd love to get to. He's not there, but again, it's a lot of guys who have played quarterback in the past 10 years, 11 years, and he's better than all of them that aren't those the guys we named. And that, that tells you something, which means if you had a better team around him, he could be just fine. And he does have upside. So I am pleasantly surprised, but I'm not going to tell you, oh man, it's incredible. Like I think, I think this guy's going to be, you know, quarterback of the year in the SEC in Billy's system. And lastly, it's easy to see why Billy selected him. Wisconsin, this kind of makes me sick though. Wisconsin runs a system and scheme, although it's different from Florida's, that's a very close cousin. It's a very close cousin. A lot of the stuff Billy wants him to do, back to the football field, execute play fakes, right? A lot of that stuff. A lot of two-man routes. That's Billy's stuff. I think he feels like this is a scheme fit. I hate that stuff, but I think that played into it too. Okay, well, this is going to be the fa- like the big storyline, the fascinating thing to follow as the season starts is what are we going to get from our quarterback position? It's a huge unknown. Um Interesting data from the film study, though. And again, that could be extremely applicable, or maybe it looks like in a Florida uniform, maybe it looks way better, or maybe it looks way worse. And I think everything is on the table for him, which is weird, right? That you have a guy who's played this much college football and there's still so much unknowns about him. Yeah, and it wouldn't surprise me in the spring game if he didn't come out and look really good. I think it's actually very likely how they script the spring game that fans are going to look and think, this dude's good because he, he, he'll play an entire game where if I showed you just that film, he'd be like, this dude's legit. And I'd show you another film and you'd go, whew. And that's true of college quarterbacks in general. But that's the review. You'll get a, you'll get visuals on YouTube. Hopefully that gives you an idea of where he is. I will say this with caution. We never try to predict where the guy will end up, right? With AR, we said ceiling is the moon. The floor is as low as you can think of. 
We just wanted to tell you how high his ceiling was. With Mertz, there's a lot smaller, you know, range for him. Right. But capable. He's a capable quarterback. The film says that. It's important for you to know that. And obviously, some of the other guys Florida fans wanted would have been better. But we really never had a realistic shot at those guys. Um, we just didn't. Not where we are. So I think it's a whole lot better right now having Mertz than just Jack Miller. And maybe Miller yeah. beats him out from what we've seen, though. That's a whole lot better. It's a whole lot better than having any random other guy that we could have had. So in a way, we're filling holes in a sinking ship. And this guy's capable of doing that job. So we'll see what he can prove beyond his days at Wisconsin. We'll find out what he can do. But I think some of you might be pleasantly surprised because you probably have heard really bad things. And it, it's really not as bad as perhaps people made out to be. All right, let's put this show to bed, Alan. A quick b-ball update. Obviously, Colin Castleton breaks his wrist and really, I think, ends Florida's season despite them mathematically being in the hunt for the tournament. Your kind of thoughts on Florida basketball and Golden year one? I think ultimately disappointing. And there's moments where I think we were feeling really encouraged by the trajectory of the team. Just never really came together. Like, this is a huge probability, not even just a possibility when you're cobbling together a ton of transfers and you're making the team on the fly that just doesn't gel for whatever reasons you want. I mean, it's just so many unknowns. It didn't work like they wanted to disappointing seasons from a lot of guys, even though, um, you know, good year from Castleton, better year from a guy like Myron Jones, just the, the other guys that you brought in just didn't quite do the thing you were hoping for. No one really made a leap. Everyone was just kind of like, okay. And a guy like Kowasi Reeves, who was like a lot of talent, every time he's out there, we're like, ugh, because he's just, just chucking from like 30 feet all the time, seemingly. Yeah, black hole. On so, office. yeah, I mean, I don't know. There was a lot There's a lot of room for Florida to be much better. There was some room for them to be a little worse. I think they're hitting on kind of the, a little bit of the lower quadrant of outcomes for them. And... Not that this wasn't in range, but it is still kind of disappointing. Yeah, I thought what Golden could control, he controlled largely well. I thought he tried every possible lineup. I thought he developed Castleton into an unbelievable college basketball player this season. He took a lot of significant steps forward. I thought Florida constantly tried things on offense to to get better. And largely, Allen, it's a simple formula. If you cannot shoot three-point shots, mm. you are going to lose. And for Florida on the road to be shooting less than 19% That's the story right in now. the SEC play, is all you need to know. No college basketball team is going to be winning games shooting like that. And that's not Golden's fault. Now we can argue he built a bad roster that couldn't shoot in year one. It's year one. We're going to see what's going to happen. I found the team oddly entertaining and fun to watch. They played hard a lot despite yes. their issues. They always they always stayed in games. Even times I thought they were going to get blown out by 40, they would make a run and close the so game. So there was a lot that was endearing. So I think for year one with Golden, this was sort of in line with what I think with a lot of people expected with the, the better side being, you know, you and Justin had hoped to make the tournament. That was the expectation to kind of sneak in that first line fell short of that largely because of shooting. But, uh, well, you thought I, I Richard mean, would be a little bit better, right. um, blanking on our point guards. Name. Well, Lofton really Lofton was, was, was really lowest, a guy, the lowest end of what we could have got out of him. Yeah. Yeah. And you're hoping Reeves is a more productive and player. Was I mean, a shadow of what if we're wanted. shooting 35% from three, oh, we're a seven seed. And exactly. And so I think that's a thing. Is that golden's fault? I don't know. Perhaps we're going to find out, but I'm okay with what I see from golden right now. I see some upside. We'll see what happens with him in the future. All right. March is around the corner and we're doing our customary March mailbag. So send your, your questions in now or later, whenever you want, we will post that on social media. So you have a window of time to send them in as well. But again, March mailbag coming around the corner as always on behalf of Alan, 
I'm James. This was the Good Mishful Podcast. We will see you guys soon.